Nostalgia conjures our idealized past, which can be inspirational as long as one does not seek it above an imperfect present and an uncertain future. Hey, everyone. Uh, glad you're tuned into the House Mercy podcast. Hope you're all doing okay. Can't wait till I can say it's good to see you, but it's good to know you're out there. So thanks for being here. Uh, yeah, it's like, uh, boy, things are moving quickly, aren't they? The, like, it just almost seems like it was such a band and no masks if you're vaccinated, fully vaccinated. Although I think actually the uh, mayor, Melvin Carter, said that masks are still required in St. Paul. Oh, sure. Yeah. But I don't know that for sure, but I think I heard that. So. Yeah, well, I don't think we would just be, I mean, I'm not quite ready anyway. Everybody coming in, no masks, you know. I know. Yeah, no. I think. I'm just quite, yeah. yeah. I'm not quite ready to see the bottom of everybody's faces. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we've gotten so used to this now. Yeah. Um, but. But there's, I do, I don't know, yeah, do you feel happy and free or just a little bit nervous and unsure? I, I, I feel a mixture. I feel a mixture, too. I feel sort of, ha I feel like, what could this be possible? I even have found myself forgetting my mask, like, completely when I leave. Like, somehow my subconscious has made this switch already. And then I'm like, wait a minute, it's not over. So, but uh, yeah, we yeah. will have a chance to uh, to see everybody in person outside on June 20th. That's right. Everybody come together June 20th. Pardon me. Outside. And here's the big thing. I don't know if you've heard, but July 11th, we're going to start meeting in person regularly again. Inside, believe it or not. Inside. Inside. I think we'll start with masks, though. Absolutely. Right? We're going to start with yes. masks. We're not going to be, I don't think we're going to be singing hymns, anything like that. And uh, we kind of have targeted the beginning of September for our full-on, wide-open, everybody, you know, back to normal, maybe. We'll see how things go, but that's kind of yeah, what well, we're thinking now. we'll see how things go. But that's uh, how we've learned to but, live. But we are going to start meeting regularly. Yeah, July 11th. Inside masks socially mm -hmm. distanced yeah and, and i know it's, it is going to be hard especially a lot of us you know kind of just once you kind of get down in that uh isolation it's hard to get back out especially those so maybe you could uh, start practicing saying things like um how was your week or um oh it's really great to see you are your parents okay you know stuff like that little uh what else would you say i can't even remember now what do you how do you make small talk I think I think it'll be hard at first, but I bet we'll be able to do it. And you know, small talk is small talk, so it's not that it's not that important. It's just social. Like, uh, are you doing something different with your eyebrows? Maybe <laughs> right. something like that. These are just something. Like, okay, well, anyway, we're going to practice up, 
and we're going to yes. be ready to see you all, your smiling faces beneath, beneath your masks on June 20th outside, and then resuming our weekly in-person outdoor uh, indoor services July 11th. Looking forward to it. This is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, help us believe that you left your spirit with us. And though that sounds a bit abstract, make it real to us that we might breathe it in. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you. When I was just a boy in days of childhood I used to play till evening shadows come Winding down an old familiar pathway I heard my mother call at set of sun Supper time. The shadows lengthen fast. Come home, come home, it's supper time. We're going home at last. One day. Beside her bedside I was kneeling And angel wings were winnowing the air She heard the call for supper time in heaven And now I know she's waiting for me The shadows lengthen fast Come home, come home, it's supper time
proper time We're going home at last I invite you to join me in the prayers of community I'll end each prayer or petition with God in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for the world, that we might turn some corner or finally arrive at some place where we can see all other people people as fully human, fully, and that this would keep us from believing some people deserve less or have it coming. Keep us from recklessly bombing and shooting, killing children, sons, mothers. It seems like you've given us enough intelligence, enough heart and soul, that we should be able to learn peace and move toward justice. Forgive us that we keep making the same mistakes. We pray for the Middle East, for Minneapolis, for Washington, D.C., for our hearts and our souls. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, in mercy, we pray that truth will somehow prevail, recognizing that we, as often as not, may not know it. Make us open to it, whatever it is. But if there are forces actively suppressing it, preferring something personally advantageous or profitable, we pray that those forces will fail. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, as the school year winds down, we pray for students and teachers to hold on a little longer. May they feel satisfied knowing they have nearly finished a very hard year. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, help us emerge from our cocoons with wings. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those who are languishing, who have run out of energy or hope. We pray for those who are anxious, for those who are depressed. We pray for those who are physically sick. We pray for moments of respite, for endurance, and for healing. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Now hear us as we bring before you our prayers and our confessions as we pause for silence. Gather all the prayers of all your people into your arms. Amen. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, 
which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So we went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. I have two things I want to tell you straight out. Two things that I believe. One, Jesus really, really did rise from the dead. And the Bible is a book that can be trusted. Now, these two things are two things that I mostly believe most of the time. But I will confess that sometimes after Easter and after the intensity of Good Friday and Easter and all the contemplating of the death and the celebrating of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the incarnate God's very transformation of death, I get a little, I don't know, would you say like depressed, maybe? Skeptical, maybe? 
I don't know, it could just be a letdown, you know, it's after you like a, you know, final closing night of your high school spring musical and, you know, that Monday everybody's all sad. It could be that kind of thing, although maybe bigger stakes. It's just maybe, you know, I just come to think it's that kind of, it's that thing. I'm let down, Easter week's a big event, Easter weekend, so maybe that's just it. But I start to think about the body. You know, the body of Jesus the Christ, who is alive, but actually, physically, is nowhere to be seen. Which can seem a little strange given that our faith is built on the proclamation that Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, actually, physically, is killed, but returns, is dead, but then is not dead, and I'd say undead. The Bible reports that he is fully alive, but he has died. We say he has come back to life. We have these stories of people seeing him and talking to him, touching him physically, physically Physicality is a really, really big part of our faith. We are called not just to believe things, not just to think things. We are called to do things with our bodies as a result of our embrace of the life, death, and resurrection story. Love people with our bodies. Touch each other with our bodies. Care for each other's bodies care for the physical and well-being of each other's bodies, feed each other's bodies. So, when I get into this post-Ixter funk, I think to myself, okay, all right, our faith tradition, my faith is based on the bedrock of this bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, maybe, maybe it's this, this is what it's at. Maybe Jesus did not so much defeat death, but maybe included death in life. So it's not so much like death did something to Jesus, and then God, the creator, reached into the grave and undid it. Like on that Sunday morning, God, the creator, resuscitates Jesus. No. It's not so much that death did something to Jesus that needed to be undone. It's more like Jesus did something to death. Made life and death no longer in rivalry with one another. Jesus included death in life. This is great. I can go with that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that. Jesus, God-man with an actual body, was dead and now is also fully alive. People talk to him. He says, see my body? So then I start to think back to the whole body thing again and think, no, Jesus, I do not see your body. Has anybody seen Jesus' body? I know a lot of you here on Sunday morning. Was he in the back pew? I don't know. He wasn't up front. I didn't see him. So maybe he, I don't know, if back then, like, here's the problem with seeing his body. Like, nobody really had a picture of him. 
So there was no, they couldn't back, they couldn't compare, right? Maybe they didn't know him or DNA to actually prove back then that this was Jesus who was risen from the dead. But I suppose they wouldn't even need DNA if he actually physically rose from the dead, right? Because enough people would be like, yeah, that is totally him. He's right here. And you'd say, where's Jesus? Did he really rise from the dead? And you'd go like, yeah, I'm right here. And you'd be like, oh. So that makes me start to think, um, maybe that whole part is just like one, a clever, a very clever story made up by these clever story thinker-upper to establish religion or people. Which is a good one. I know, so I, how can I help it? I read this Luke, this Luke, we read this passage, I don't know if you know this, every year, the same passage after Easter. And I don't know, sometimes I'm a little bit uh, skeptical about it. Like I, every year, I'm, I'm kind of confronted with this. And I wonder, you know, is this Luke here? Sometimes, actually, to be honest with you, when I read Luke, I do wonder if this whole book can be trusted. Because unlike so many other Gospels, he sure seems to be, like, into the Roman Empire a lot more than the other ones are, you know? Like, he seems like he's the one that lets Pilate off the hook, Luke is. He's the one that blames it on the Jewish religious leaders, this death, everything like that. Luke is the one who goes on to write Acts, which starts in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. It's like Luke sees the future and is like, we need to spin this empire-wise. And so it makes me not trust him a little bit. As much as I like the story, I wonder if he can be trusted. I sort of think that, you know, for all those who were with Jesus, and how his death must have affected them, the guy was thinking, and the Bible was saying, that his followers, well, they thought it was all over at the time. They thought, no, they knew it was all over. They saw him die, and they did not expect him to get back up. They did not believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. What sadness there must have been, right? I mean, they were actually there. And this text for today gets at the sadness just a little bit. It says that as the two followers of Jesus were leaving Jerusalem, why were they leaving Jerusalem? Because Jesus was dead, that's why. And uh, they knew it was all over. So it says that they stood there looking sad. There's, that seems more honest and much more healthy way to feel, given the situation, than the way I was feeling maybe before about how like angry at the distortion of Luke in this story. Maybe it is just like sadness I feel and I, I'm unhealthy and constantly turn my sadness into anger at others. Maybe that happens sometimes. But they're dealing with it healthy. They just feel sad. If they feel sad here. Um, so what if it is not true at all, this thing? They're sad. Maybe part of my anger is the fear that it's not really true. Maybe sometimes I feel like, what if this is not true at all? I mean, I've kind of put a lot of time into this story, <laughs> you know? <laughs> what if it's not true? What if I'm just like a pleasant chump, you know? I'm just a pleasant chump. 
I feel afraid. Fear makes me suspicious. And I had got, I'm gotten myself into this place by thinking that I can feel what those followers felt who actually saw him die, who knew him personally. But then I really honestly don't have any access to that. I can't try and muster up some kind of real, like, feeling about what that was like. Maybe I figured the closest I could get to that unthinkable loss would be to lose my faith. Maybe that could mirror, like, they see Jesus actually die, dead, gone. Maybe I can lose him completely, too. Maybe that's as close I can get to that loss. So, maybe I decide to put away what I believe. Maybe I lose my faith. And I just look at this story like I'm just reading it. What I know is this. Jesus lived. I mean, I don't know if this is true. You hear this, but there's more you know, documentation that Jesus lived than there is documentation that Benjamin Franklin lived. People get hung up on that kite thing and it didn't really happen or whatever. I don't know. It's not documented anywhere, but Jesus definitely... We have the documentation. So I know that he lived, and I know that he died. You know why I know that? that most people do. Um, and I, I, you know, I know with certainty on account of, you know, everybody dying, that Jesus did die. And I know with certainty that anything that dies... Days dead, right? I mean, just from my experience. Um, but I also know that this new religious movement was formed around this Jesus story. And I know this from outside sources, sources outside the Bible. You know, I saw the documentaries on the TV. I read in the books. I know that this movement was active throughout the Roman Empire. So then I I read Luke's gospel from the Black Friday side of the story, from before the resurrection. I did that, and that's when I started to kind of get angry and doubtful and suspicious of Luke, you know. And that suspicion, you know, I I I read the text, and everything I suspect about what Luke's trying to do when I read it from that lack of faith point of view um, seems to be proved in the text, so I try to say this, that I, I, I read this with certainty. What, I know that Jesus did not rise from the dead. I know that this Bible cannot be trusted because of the facts I know and what it says in there. They don't match up, right? But I, I mean, I, had, I wanted to find out the reason that this movement went on in spite of the fact that, you know, this thing that they say happened didn't happen. I thought, oh, well, I know why. I ascribed to it the darkest motivation. This movement went on for why people start any kind of thing like this. You know, power and personal gain. That's what this Luke is all about, right? I mean, he's selling out to the Roman Empire. He's making this story of this rebellious rabbi safe for Rome and putting all the blame on the Judeans. But then I just started feeling so dark. 
that I started again. I went to the front of Luke's book because I used to like him quite a bit before all the suspicion. He used to be like my main guy. So I give him another chance and I start from the beginning. And I read it. And I see that he's pointing to things, he's pointing all the way back to the beginning of the book through here. I'm seeing that all through the book of Genesis, throughout Exodus, all through the Old Testament, that the God of Israel is a God that is alive and brings life out of nothing. The God of Abraham brings life out of a barren womb. The God of release brings his people out of the half-life of captivity, out of slavery into fullness of the life of freedom. And Jesus himself is made alive in the womb of a virgin girl. Luke showed me that this is a story that can in no way be separated from the history of Israel, from the Judeans. How could he be blaming them? This is a story, and the whole of it points to Jesus and to the life of Jesus that is brought back from death or brings death, includes death with it. Life from death. Death transformed by this God of life. Existence from non-existence. A nation from the childless. A savior from a virgin. And the proclamation of hope and possibility by the victim to the victimizers. Yes. Luke wrote this book after the Jewish uprising in 66. And it's a savage defeat by the Romans. The complete destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And the slaughter of all within its walls. Those who had brought death to the Judeans are now brought the proclamation of life by this one Judean. A proclamation of certainty that death cannot and will not prevail. Luke tells me when I read it that Jesus really did rise from the dead and I may witness this in his pages and his witness can be trusted. Because this isn't my story to validate or invalidate. This is the story, this is Jesus' story. And he meets these disciples on the road and they're sad. And he asks them what they're talking about. And they say, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And they said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet um, in might and deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. I had hoped that he was the one who would bring hope to the hopeless. He said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things before he enters into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them 
all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures and all the things concerning himself. Jesus did for them what Luke did for me, bringing them back through the Old Testament and teaching them about the God of Israel and how the God of Israel is the God of life and the Redeemer of Israel is the death-defeating, death-transforming, life-giving God who is Jesus of Nazareth. I'm going back to my old thing, man. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And this book really can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted because it's the story of the life-giving God of Israel who redeems the whole world, makes it possible to live in a a post-resurrection life in this sort of Black Friday world. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't some hard and crazy things in this book, and it doesn't mean there's some gray area and maybe suspect motivations here and there. It doesn't mean there's not confusion and darkness in this book. It doesn't mean you can't question the book, have fights with the book. What it means is through all the hardness and craziness and through all the confusion and darkness, it is bearing witness to life over death again and again. It is pointing to the risen Jesus. And that risen Christ means that we can choose to live life in all its fullness. We can choose hope and love and unimaginable possibility. And we can do it on firm ground with the understanding that death will not win. And with the confidence that when we lose hope and when we don't love and when we expect only the impossible, those things do not die. They do not depend on us. The post-resurrection life is always there for us. We can just pick it right up again where we left off, no matter how long we ignore it. We don't have to do it alone either. We don't have to try and figure out how to be hopeful in a seemingly hopeless world, how to live in love in an often loveless world on our own. We have each other. And even if the only thing that we can figure out to do is to come here on Sundays and remind each other that the really risen Savior compels us to love each other and that the really, really risen Savior shows us that life will never defeat death, if that's all we can do to come together and remind each other of that, that is, that's something. Every week we can come together and remind ourselves of this. And we can read the stories of life over death. And we can take his body and his blood into our own bodies. And that body there, that is not a dead body. That body is alive. That is the life that we take into our own lives. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And this book, this Bible, can be trusted. And this community can love each other and love the world. This is God's table, and all are welcome.
On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and gave thanks for it and broke it and gave it to the disciples to eat, saying, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and gave the cup for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and shed for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Peace of the Spirit go with you and be with you. Amen.